eighth chapter, I mean, the eleventh chapter of Romans. And I'm sure you have a worksheet. We'll look at verse 30 after a moment. The Himalayan mountain peaks form the most formidable site on the face of the earth. They stretch four and a half to five and a half miles above the level of the sea. And it is a tremendous task just to reach the base of these great mountains. And the most magnificent peak of all is Mount Everest. It's interesting that until 19, the 1920s, no expedition had ever been formed to try to reach the top of Everest. And from the 20s, from 1920 to 1953, there were 11 expeditions, 10 of which were failures, including an expedition by a group of Englishmen in 1923. They spent two years preparing for it, and they decided they would scale the northern slope of Mount Everest. And after two years of planning, they started their assault on this magnificent mountain peak. Two men almost reached the top, a man by the name of Mallory and Irvine, and they were seen last at 28,230 feet, and they disappeared, never to be seen again. Everest stands over 29,000 feet above sea level. And it wasn't until 29 years later that a man by the name of Sir Edmund Hillary, a name now which is a household name among mountaineers, scaled the top to the top of Mount Everest. He gathered together an expedition of men and they assaulted the southern slope believed by mountain climbers to be unclimbable. And it took them two months to travel that five and a half miles to the top. And one day, Hillary and an unknown guide stood on the top of Mount Everest for the first time. They did the impossible. They accomplished the incredible. And for the first time in the history of man, man's eyes saw from the top of Mount Everest. They saw things that no man had ever seen before. They witnessed what no man had ever witnessed, of course, had never photographed. These men stood at the top of the most magnificent peak in the world. Now, it would be interesting to know what they said when they reached the top. No one knows. In fact, Socrates was right, I think, when he said, words are stupid at epical moments in time. And so prob probably nothing was said. I would expect, you know, at least a wow, you know, or what do you think of that old chap, you know, as they looked, or one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. But the silence is eloquent. I want you to put yourself in their place, in their boots if you can. Wrap yourself around with their parka and let the hood hang down almost over your eyes and stand where they stood and feel the ice as it howls across the top of Mount Everest. 
in a wind gust of over 50 miles an hour. And just imagine what they saw as they looked back down on those slopes. There's only one man who could appreciate what they did. His name was Paul. For he scaled to the heights of theology in the book of Romans. It is the Everest of theology. No man has ever thought these thoughts. And no man has ever spoken these words. No man has reached the pinnacle of theology that the Apostle Paul reached in the book of Romans. And he stands on the pinnacle of the 11th chapter of this book and he looks back down the slopes of where he's been. He's come to the pinnacle, to the top of this great statement of theology. And he looks back and he sees the mountain peak of the sovereignty of God. And he, on the other side of that mountain peak, the responsibility of man, and he sees the Jews and the Gentiles. Nathaniel Hawthorne called mountains earth's undecaying monuments of time. And that's what Romans is. It's an undecaying monument of time. And it just so happens that we have reached the pinnacle of this great book in verse 30. Read it with me. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient in order that because of the mercies shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are, are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. And he sees three great peaks that I want us to look at tonight. The mercy and the mind and the majesty of God. He calls the mercy of God unsearchable. And he calls the mind of God unfathomable. And he calls the majesty of God, unmatchable, unmatched. These three great mountain peaks we'll look at. First, the mercy of God. Now we need to remember that this great statement is in the context, in a context, and we need to remember the context. It is a context of Jews and Gentiles and it's sometimes easy to forget who, you know, who he's talking about there in, the, in that uh, verse 30. Who, are, who is the you and who are the there? Look at verse 30. For just as you, you refers 
to the Gentiles, to, to you. And there refers to the Jews. You were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of the Jews' disobedience. And so Paul looks back in summary down the slopes and he sees that the Gentiles have been, and he's reminded that the Gentiles have been brought into the fold because the Jews have been rejected. They rejected the gospel, so God rejects them. Even though through the centuries the prophet has foretold the coming of Christ, when he came into the world, John says, he came into his own creation and his own people received him not. Here is Jesus, and they said, we don't want him. And so God set aside the Jews, and he grafted in the Gentiles into the fold, into the family. And there's nothing in our heritage that would make us commendable to him. And there is nothing profound in our heritage. You go back far enough in your heritage and you'll find that the Gentile world was the most pagan, corrupt people of all. So why did God include us? And what was the motivation of his grafting in the Gentiles? As a matter of fact, let's go back and see our heritage. Your New Testament there, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. This is the way we were if you go back far enough. Chapter 2 of Ephesians. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Look at verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the way we all were. So the question is, why is it that God set aside the Jews when the Jews rejected Jesus and grafted in the Gentiles? Well, the text suggests two reasons. In verse 31, it suggests that he did that in order that the Gentiles would become the channels of mercy to the Jews. I, had a, I heard him a man give his testimony at a convention I was in. He, he, he was a, uh, a missionary to the Jews. And he said, every time I win a Jew, on my way back home, I'm thinking to myself, is this the last one before the Lord returns? In other words, 
Is this the final one that God wants to save before He returns to this earth? He grafted us in because He meant for us to become a channel of mercy to the Jews, a missionary to the Jews. The second reason He says in verse 32 is because of His mercy He grafted us in. Look at that, ver- that phrase, shut up. It means to enclose together. It's like a fish caught in a net. It's like an animal in a trap, helplessly caught, unable to get out unless someone on the outside comes and releases it. And Paul says that we were all shut up as in a trap until one day the Lord Himself in mercy came and released us. And He opened the door and set us free. And the key that he used was his mercy. The only explanation for the fact that the Lord has included you in his plan and me is his mercy. You remember that time that in the New Testament Jesus told about the two men who went up to the place to pray. And one was a Pharisee, and he prayed, Lord, I'm just thankful that I'm not like this man. Wouldn't you love that? You know, have somebody praying beside you, Lord, I'm thankful I'm not as this man. And the sinner, the the publican, he says, smote his breast and cried, Lord, be merciful to me. And he said they both went away, but one went away reconciled. Now what was the motivation or the means of that reconciliation? The mercy of God. I like A.W. Tozius' definition of mercy. He says, mercy is an attribute of God, an infinite and inexhaustible energy within the divine nature which disposes God to be actively compassionate. Actively compassionate. And this word in the New Testament is is like the word love. It's more of a verb than it is a noun. It means that God was so merciful, He did something about our need. As somebody said, uh, mercy is God's ministry to the miserable. Now you and I can sit in our living room at home and think about our neighbor and have mercy and feel sorry for them and and say, Lord, I wish you'd do something. We want to pray for our neighbor. He's in terrible shape. To have active compassion is to say, Lord, would you like to use me? The mountain peak of the mercy of God. Second mountain peak. God's mind. Now we move into an area that is beyond comprehension when we begin to talk about the mind of God, unfathomable, beyond comprehension. Paul begins his statement, oh, the depths. That word in the Greek is the word bathos, B-A-T-H-O-S, oh, the bathos of the mind of God. Now, some of you are familiar with the name Jacques Cousteau. He's that old guy that with a white mustache that swims around, you know, under the ocean. Takes those pictures, mag- magnificent pictures. Jacques Cousteau. When I was growing up, some of you remember this, the Jacques, 
Cousteau of our day was a guy by the name of Dr. Beebe. You remember him? Yeah, some of you old as I am. Most of you older than I am. Well, some of you older than I am. Dr. Beebe. Now, Dr. Beebe invented, you remember that? He, invented, he built this sphere, huge. It was like a BB, only much bigger. He built this huge sphere made out of solid steel and a one window in it out of quartz. And he, it was tied to this long cable. It had an oxygen tube to it as well. And they would put this sphere out in the depths of the ocean and he named it the bathosphere. Some of you who've read something about that know that about that. He named it the bathosphere because of the, and after the, after the Greek word depths. And they dropped this thing down in the depths of the ocean and through that quartz window they saw sights and took pictures of things that man had never seen before. Oh, the depths of the, of the mind of God. And in this kind of an imaginary bubble called the finite mind, we're allowed to plummet into the depths of the mind of God through His Word. And in the limitless mind of God, in the infinite mind of God, we're able to take a look around. The first thing that the Apostle Paul says about him is that he is infinite. Now I was looking through my little book the other day by A.W. Tozer. In a, in a, in a, if you don't read anything else, read the sports page and the market page, get you the book, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. He's also got a book called The Pursuit of the Holy, and he has a, there's a magnificent book out called The Best of A.W. Tozer. He was, a, he was a Christian missionary alliantist in Chicago and had a Christian missionary alliance church. He's a magnificent theologian. Listen to what he says about the infinite God. When we say that God is infinite, we mean that He knows no bounds. Whatever God is and all that God is, He is without limit. To say that God is infinite is to say that He is measureless. Measurement is the way created things have of accounting for themselves. It describes limitations, imperfections, and cannot apply to God. Weight describes the gravitational pull of the earth upon material bodies, distance describes intervals between bodies in space. Length means extension in space. And there are other familiar measurements such as those for liquid, energy, sound, light, and numbers for pluralities. We also try to measure abstract qualities and speak of great or little faith, high or low intelligence, large or meager talents. Is it not plain? that all this does not and cannot apply to God. It is the way we see the work of His hands, but not the way we see Him. He is above all that is, outside of it, beyond it. Our concepts of measurement embrace mountains and men, atoms and stars, gravity, energy, numbers, speed, but never God. 
We cannot speak a measure or amount or size or weight and at the same time be speaking of God. For these tell of degrees and there are no degrees in God. All that He is, He is without growth or addition or development. Nothing in God is less or more or large or small. He is what He is in Himself without qualifying thought or word. He is simply God. Wow, wish I thought of that. He is infinite. And he is unfathomable, he said. It means untrackable. You can't track him. You can't get a fix on him. You think you can understand him, but you can't. You can't shut up, you know, all that God is in a, in a mind, in a thought. It'd be like putting a baby grand piano in a broom closet. He's untrackable and unfathomable. And you can't get a fix on him. So that when we stand on this mountain peak of the mind of God, we remember what Isaiah said, my thoughts, God speaking, are not your thoughts. And my ways are not your ways. It's interesting that that term, my ways, and God speaking, are not your ways. That word there in the Hebrew is weaving. What he's saying is, the way that I weave your life together is not the way you would do it. Don't you know that's true? You think back over the last 10 years of your life. Could you have imagined 10 years ago that the things that have happened to you would have happened to you? And if you stood where you stand, stood 10 years ago, if you were there and you know what you know now about these 10, the last decade, would you have planned it that way? No, you wouldn't have. Unfathomable are the ways of God. And look at the circumstances of your life in the present. How do you understand what's happening to you? How do you get a fix on that? And how can you explain how all of this has come about except that God goes about doing what He does in ways that you and I cannot comprehend? Immeasurable God. In 1865 was the darkest hour in the history of this nation. It was at the height of the Civil War. Historians said, that the clouds came over the sky and never left. And during the time of the Civil War, God spoke to a Scotsman by the name of Walter Chalmers Smith, and he wrote a hymn. We sing it sometimes, not enough. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. In light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. I love this next verse, my favorite. Unresting, unhasting, and silent as light. Nor wanting, nor wasting, thou rulest in might. 
Thy justice like mountains high soaring above, above thy clouds which are fountains of goodness and love. Oh, the mind of God. And the Apostle Paul said, who knows that mind? Who understands what God is doing in your life? It's dangerous to presume that God is doing a certain way. Dangerous to presume that. And who is this counsel? I am. I mean, you are. I am. You are. We are. I gave God some counsel this last week. You know, I do it all the time. I told God his options and reminded him which was the best. You know, it's a dangerous thing to counsel God and to quarrel with God. Think about how you came into this world. Would you have done it that way? In a manger? Born to a virgin, a teenage girl? Raised in Nazareth? No way. It was the hellhole of the world. No wonder Nathaniel said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth never mentioned in the Old Testament, not in the Talbot, not in Josephus. It was the most hated place in the world of the Jews, for the Jews. Romans had a garrison there. Raised in Nazareth? Born in Bethlehem of a virgin? Who can understand the mind of God? It all comes down to the fact that man cannot understand him. He just trusts him. I shared with the guys at noon the other day that John Killinger, Killinger was doing a conference on education, religious education in a church in East Texas. And this lady came up to him and she said, guess what I was? Because it was a church of Christ conference, he said, let me guess, Baptist. Because <laughs> he knew she was implying it. What am I doing here? Oh, she said, no, I was a professional gambler. She said, I gambled for a living. She said, let me tell you about the time I gambled everything on one spin of the wheel. She said, I was in Vegas and I was hitting it big. She said, I started out playing the slots and I was winning, hitting it two out of three times. I built up my winnings to 60,000. I went to the roulette wheel and I was on a roll. And she said, I built my winnings up to $109,000 and I had a feeling about the next turn of the wheel and I bet it all on that one wheel, one shot. She said, my husband tried to get me not to, but I just had a gut feeling. And she said, I put it all on one number, one spin of the roulette wheel, and I lost. <laughs> and she said, I was sick for days. But she said, about a month later, a man came and told me about God. And she said, I decided I would risk it all on him. And I bet my life on him. And she said, I told my husband, don't think I'm crazy, but I'm going to start teaching Sunday school at the church. And she said, guess what? Now I'm the head honcho of the religious education of our church. And she said, I risk everything on him. If you can't fathom 
him. If you can't track him and get a fix on him, and you can't, and you can't understand him, and you don't know about him, what he's doing, you, don't, you can't explain it. As Spurgeon said, when you can't trace his hand, you can trust his heart, and you can bet it all on him. And that's the mountain peak of the mind of God. And Paul's standing there on that mountain peak, and he's exposing this mind of God that we trust. And then finally, the majesty of God. Look at this. I've heard Jerry use this. All things are from Him and through Him and to Him that Jesus may be glorified. All things. You're sick? You have a lingering illness? All things are from Him, through Him, and are to be given back to Him in gratitude. You've had a business failure? From Him, through Him, to Him. In order that He might be glorified. Oh, what a mountain peak. To stand and look down the slopes and understand that God is to be glorified in all things. In all things. Listen, I'm through. Donald Barnhouse says that when he was a kid growing up, there was this wheat field across the road from his house out in Kansas. It got on fire one Sunday afternoon, raging fire. And he said the only thing that separated that wheat field, fire in that wheat field and their house was this little dirt road. And he said the wind was up and he said it was coming toward the house, sweeping like a fire, prairie fire. You've seen them. He said out there along the road was across from our house, the edge of the road, was a gigantic oak tree. And he said when that fire came up to that oak tree, it was lapping up and leaping up the flames. And it was catching some of the branches on fire. And he said things would fall into the ground. Big old pieces of bark and limbs would fall into the earth. He said, I crouched in the corner of our house, afraid that the fire would come there. He said somehow, miraculously, their home was spared. And he said, when it was safe to do it, he said, I remember shoving my hands down in my pocket and I walked outside and I could feel the heat radiating from that prairie. And he said, I started walking around and I was looking at these chunks of bark and pieces of wood that were on the ground. And he said, I walked over and with my toe, he said, I kicked a piece of bark I thought was a chunk of a tree. And he says, some little chicks ran out. And he said, under closer investigation, I found 
that that was not a bark, piece of bark. It was the charred remains of an old hen. And when the fire got so hot, she gathered those little chickens under herself and went to the fire for them. And then said Barnhouse, he pulled us, did God, under, I'm quoting, under his wings, and he went to the fire to provide the mag- majestic purpose of all eternity, the death of his son, that we might live. And Paul signs it with a great amen. For the greatest mountain peak of the majesty of God was what he accomplished in the death of his son. And when you scale to the heights of this great book and you look back, what you see is the wideness of God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. And what you see is a mind that's unfathomable. So don't try to track His ways. Trust Him. And what you see is the majesty of God displayed in the sacrifice of His Son. To God be the glory. Let's pray together. Father, how awesome and wonderful is the great truth of your word. Don't ever let us get tired of it. Don't ever let us Take it for granted. Don't ever let us get to the place where we are not awestruck by the wonder of it all. And forgive us that we have handled this great truth with a deadening familiarity and a yawning indifference. Take us again and again to the height of the great gospel of the Lord God and of His Son. For I pray in His name and for His sake. I wonder if there's a need tonight that needs to be publicly expressed a need for salvation tonight a need for a new fresh touch from God upon a cold indifferent life is there a need for a fresh touch from the Lord oh yes that's our greatest need Maybe there's someone who just need to come and kneel at the altar. Maybe just the old-fashioned altar call where you'd come to say to God, 
Make me like your son. Restore the joy of thy salvation. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.